Hello, freaks, and welcome to a very special episode of Radical Research. For our 15th episode, we mark the release exactly 25 years ago of three extraordinary albums released by Roadrunner Records on the same day, September 15, 1993, Believer's Dimensions, Pestilence's Spheres, and Cynic's Focus. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer, there's some sketchy history regarding the same-day data of these albums. Some sources have the Pestilence album coming out in May. I'm pretty sure that was in Europe. The U.S. version, I think, came out maybe late August, if not September 15th. I know that's a lot of nitpicking and train spotting, but we're like that, and so are our listeners. So there you go. Committed to accuracy since Uh, 2018. (laughs) (laughs) And this whole thing was bolstered by sort of posters and print ads and a cassette sampler that Roadrunner released called The Breed Beyond. Uh, I think there was an ad tagline of forging new metal. And, I, you know, and this was 1993, and this truly meant a new kind of metal, and ironically had nothing to do with the NU new metal Roadrunner would specialize in several years later, right? Right. This represented sort of the final evolutionary leap in the, the death metal morphology. Like in 1993, especially with these records, they're like, I don't necessarily consider the Believer record to be a death metal record. It's still like, you know, spiritually linked to, to this movement and represents sort of the end of the spectrum. And, you know, honest, you know, it, as things would you know, kind of shake out after this, you would see, you know, death metal sort of begin to decline and an interest um, begin to surge in European metal and black metal and things like that. So I, I think this kind of represents the, the end of death metal's journey. Interesting. And we're, we had, that's what we're going to focus on as well as, you know, the, the talk around these. Three I'm sorry, Jeff, did you say we were going to focus? <laughs> oh, oh. Well, my research tells me. <laughs> anyway, um, before we get into that, I wanted to mention that this episode was supposed to have been the first time you and I recorded an episode in the same room together, right? Correct. But Hurricane Florence blew through. You postponed the trip. And you're going to come up here in a couple of weeks and we'll record some other episode. But we were hoping to do it together because these albums in this, in this particular episode are so special for us. They, they mean a lot to us, as you'll hear. But um, we are recording it on the day that we believe these albums were, were released to the world. Let's get into it. What, what got us to this point? Let's kind of back up from 1993. Uh, you know, what happened in metal to cause this evolution where we're suddenly in 93 facing a large handful of albums that kind of represented the genre at its you know, most challenging and sophisticated and progressive and technical? What are some of the, what were some of the earmarks there? What are some of the albums that kind of you know, would lead us to that point? You know, the first two atheist records, um, for sure. And I think Atheist had a, a pivotal influence on Cynic. I mean, because Cynic early on, I mean, they were hardly even a death metal band. They were really kind of like a thrash band yeah. and, and not even a very good one. And then all of a sudden, I mean, they developed slowly. And then all of a sudden with the Roadrunner demo, you have this like really extraordinary band. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there, you know, the, the tides had been swelling for years. Right. Uh, 
uh, you know, in, in Europe and America alike. And I think, you know, by 91 and 92, you really kind of reached a saturation point with death metal. I mean, you, you know better than I do even because I got into death metal in 91. You were there for, you know, the, the full development. Yeah. But I mean, by 91, 92, I mean, labels were putting out virtually anything. Yeah. I mean, bands like, you know, Mortis Skull had, had deals, you know? Right. Um, so I, I think that there was this, um, this renegade faction of death metal musicians that um, began listening. I think the really, really critical thing um, for me is like death metal musicians beginning to listen to things outside of death metal. Mm -hmm. They were listening to whether it be fusion or world music or progressive rock or whatever. These guys were like starting to, you know, take into very serious consideration these other kinds of music, not only as listeners, but for um, the capacity for death metal itself to absorb those influences. Right. Um, and, I, and, and I just think that resulted in some of the most breathtaking music that's ever been made, as we will hopefully illustrate today. Well, sure. And on the other side of the coin, and, you know, you and I don't have anything, you know, specifically against very straightforward death metal. But when you started uh, to have bands uh, from the early to mid 90s who were primarily influenced by the death metal that came before it, you started to get a really watered down sort of sound and, and right. something that, that really was lacking in layering and depth, right? Correct. Um, because there just wasn't, there wasn't that sort of wide, large, deep pool of influence. Yeah, um, it was like, yeah, because the original, I mean, the, the, the originators of death metal were pulling from just extreme music in general. I mean, you know, like you read the Swedish death metal book and hear Nikki Anderson's account of, you know, getting, you know, repulsion demos and autopsy demos, but also hardcore punk. And so you like, you know, that time frame that you referenced from the early to the mid nineties, you basically have these like third generation facsimiles that are only referring to like the, you know, to the, the sound itself, but not any of the actual things that informed it to begin with. Right. And, and, and I think in the run up to 93, I'd like to also mention, as you did Atheist, that's a very, very important uh, sort of influence in this whole world. But obviously, I think to mention Hatros by Voivod oh, yeah, was sure. highly influential. I, I also want to say Death, uh, Death Row's Deception Ignored from 1988. I hear traces of deception ignored in the Believer and Pestilence albums we're going to be discussing. I don't think that those bands may have been influenced by Death Row, or they may have, but yeah. I just feel like the, the spirit of deception ignored goes back. It, it's, it's from 1988, but it, it, you can hear it in 1993. Five I'd years. like to throw, um, oh, absolutely, in the guitar language particularly, I'd like to throw um, Release from Agony into that pool too. Uh, yeah, that's, yep, that's a good one. Um, Mekong Delta, if we're sticking yep. with Germany. Uh, of course, you know, Watchtower was a huge influence on the guys in Cynic and Atheist um, and Death. And of course, we get to Death's Human in 91, which will directly figure into our discussion later on Cynic. Uh, even bands like Fate's Warning and Psychotic Waltz were really adding to the, the pool of influence that a lot of these guys were, were taking from. Oh, for sure. I mean, those bands kind of indirectly or directly, you know, rerouted the direction of death metal. Right. And then we get up to 93. And I mean, you, if you want to talk about, or just list, just to give us a little bit of framework before we jump into these albums, uh, what other albums came out in 93 that were really noteworthy and are kind of, you know, part of the, part of the family tree of these other albums as well. <laughs> 
as you know, as you know, I have a list. Um, <laughs> however, I don't have that list handy, so I'm going to do this just from memory. And I'm sure there will be some omissions, and for that, I apologize. But just off the top of my head, um, Oblivion, uh, Nemesis, um, Psychotic Waltzes into the Everflow. That's um, debatable whether that's '92 or '93. It um, works as '93. I, I think you could justify it. Anyway, yeah, let's say we'll say '93. Um, uh, atheist um, elements. Uh, why am I blanking here? Anna Cruz's um, screams and whispers. Okay, yeah, screams and whispers. There's yeah, there's so many. Voivod outer limits. Um, I think it should be part of that conversation. Absolutely, loud uh, blast, sublime dementia. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. Um, uh, deaths, individual thought patterns. Yeah. Can we throw in carbonized disharmonization and um, disharmonic orchestra pleasure dome? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and there's more, and clearly we can see that there's just a lot happening in Prague, death, metal, 1993. Right. Uh, yeah, mind over four halfway down. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's start with Believer's Dimensions. Okay. Um, when did you first become aware of this band? Was it before yeah. Dimensions? Yeah, um, the first issue of Maniacs that I ever got was, had the, um, the 91 wrap-up in it. And I immediately um, was cotton to Borovoy Creek. And um, there was something about his taste and his writing that just really, really connected with me. So he was, he and Eula Garrett were kind of my shepherds um, through that early, um, my early phase as a, as a metal listener. And um, he had Sanity Obscure on his uh, end of year list. And mm -hmm. I, in fact, I think Eula may have even had Sanity Obscure on his end of the decade list in 1999. I can't recall, but I know he holds that record in, in extreme regard. Absolutely. But yeah, that was my um, that was my uh, introduction to them. I think that it was a little um, out of my depths at the time. Um, I, I'd really been like gotten into you know just super direct death metal, you know, via Earache and Roadrunner, and this was not as deathly and far far more complex than the stuff that I'd been hearing. Yeah, um, but it didn't take too long, and because I. I started playing drums um, right after that and started to take the instrument a little more seriously and, and, and started to seek out, you know, more ambitious music and the, the Believer record fit right into that for me. The, the thing about Believer for me, like when I think about them and their, the kind of hallmarks of their sound, is there's two things. There's the guitar sound, which was this malevolent dark guitar tone, kind of unlike any other band. Like you just know it's them by the tone, which is immediately. Pretty cool signature. And then Kurt Bachman's voice, which was just yep. this kind of scraping, desperate, seething kind of thing. And the fact that they were Christian, you know, because that, that, that always comes into the conversation somehow, was pretty wild because they just didn't seem like a novelty Christian band. They were, you know, yeah, well, they, they were. that's where they were coming from. Their, their themes were Christian in nature. They were indeed believers. And, but they weren't uh, preachy at all, you know, no, they didn't no, have that no. like, proselytizing tone. Yeah, and, and I think secular listeners or people that just didn't really care about Christian metal because there hadn't been a lot of great stuff uh, from that world, you know, Believer, I think, blew a lot of people away um, just because of the, 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 the approach and the tone of it and uh, the sincerity of it and, um, yeah, the lack of, the lack of novelty and, and jokiness, really. So, you know, yeah, after Sanity Obscure, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about Dimensions, because um, I think we have to, particularly one song. You know, Dimensions kind of was incredibly ambitious compared to Sanity Obscure. Like, it took the ambition of Sanity Obscure and just, you know, multiplied it times 10. Oh, yeah. For better or worse. 
Yeah. Well, I think for better and worse, actually. Okay, right. Yes. Yes. You and I, you and I agree. And let's just take this album in, in halves. The first six songs are like this mini textbook on what tech metal sounds and feels like to me. Yeah, same. Each song it's still is, the, like the most daring guitar work that I've ever heard in metal. Yeah. yeah and being song, like getting reacquainted with it this past week. I mean, I've just been stunned. Yeah, I, I think of the three we're talking about, it's the most left field in terms of the amount of I, different ideas they're trying to throw in, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the first six songs, you know, they're, they're still pretty tight in terms of their, you know, how they focus. And, you know, that's, that's not a pun. Um, <laughs> but um, each song is like as good as the next one. There's high points and interesting events in each one. Um, to me, these six songs are their peak. Um, I would agree with that. And then I always have to throw in the, the previous albums, Daya Zirai, because Day of Wrath, because that is still probably my favorite believer moment. That'll figure into uh, the conversation about the second half of Dimensions, really. But let's yeah. kind of focus on uh, these first six songs. And let's listen to a couple snippets from that, actually. Let's do uh, the leadoff track, Gone, and then we'll come back and kind of continue talking about Dimensions. Damn. 
Yeah, very strong. So many, so many <laughs> wonderful moments there. I mean, really, just in those two and a half minutes, so many highlights. Um, another thing, another feature of this record that I would like to mention is, um, and, and a lot of people in metal were getting wise to electronic music and industrial um, around this time, too. Um, and there's like a, a kind of a, a mechanistic um, feel to the drumming on this album. Yeah. That I, I think is kind of remarkable yeah. because they have a really, really interesting approach to rhythm. It's like a, I like just a really unexpected kind of take on it. Um, a lot of odd time signatures, but it's the, you know, the way that they navigate through that. I think that distinguishes them from other bands at the time because that certainly wasn't. Yeah, I feel like he starts like beats in the middle of bars almost. Like it's kind of right. like this kind of alternating current that that yeah. it, it just creates it it's it's choppy but because he's a good drummer there's there's you you have the opposite side of of things where you've got flow as well i mean it's yeah. choppy but has flow if that makes yeah. any sense at all no it does. it does no it does so it can be kind of disarming it can be you know and then that's what tech is tech is this kind of like upending of of sort of rhythmic expectation i think mm-hmm. um complication complexity all that good stuff yeah, and Believer's so good at that. And Joey Daub, he, the drummer, deserves yeah. uh, quite a bit of credit, actually, for their sound, I think. I, I agree. And we hear, you for know, sure. Bachman's vocal approach there. I just love it. There's something about his voice. I just, I just think it's very, very special. He sounds very unhinged on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we can hear all those strange melodic choices they'd make, uh, you know, within the riffs. And, you know, and the, beautiful ones, too. That yeah, solo, yeah. for instance. Totally. Kind of chiming. I, it reminds me a little bit, that chiming, ringing element of it reminds me of Psychotic Waltz. I don't know if they're inspired, but what, what the guitarist would do in Psychotic Waltz was somewhat similar to what Believer was kind of doing there as well. Yeah, um, I think. Let's listen to another one. Let's move on to the third track, Dimentia. Thank you. 
There you go. Really, obviously, you got to mention the uh, violin and viola guest musician, Scott Laird, on that. That just really makes that. And I'll tell you what, Hunter, does that remind you a ton of Fate's Warnings at Fate's Hands? Tons. Yeah. Have you, have you, have you noticed that before? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, uh, but I, now that you mention it, yeah, no, it's, yeah. Same vibe, know. same kind of melancholy, gray mood, yeah. um, yet kind of, you know, beautiful. And, but it's just, uh, it's couched in by this kind of grayness. And um, I love it. I just, I, the melancholy there is pretty heavy. Yeah, and the, um, the first part of that features what I call the beach riff. Um, which is <laughs> oh, yes. That I, the, I came up with. Ladies and gentlemen, the beach riff. again, will now explain what the hell the beach riff is. I've heard of this thing for <laughs> that, years. Yeah, I, 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 um, for years I tr tried to find nomenclature to, to describe this feeling, and I finally came up with the beach riff because when I was a teenager, I would imagine like Chuck Schulner or Kelly Schaefer like on rocks, you know, in the Tampa Bay and um, like, you know, ocean mist hitting them while they were playing guitar. Um <laughs> And it, it's, a, it, it's a mood that combines, you know, glory and victory and melancholy and uh, struggle and, and just kind of binds all of those emotions together. The beach riff is a, is a fundamental, like, bedrock element of tech metal for me, too. Like, beyond all the, the rhythmic trickery and the acrobatics, like, the beach riff, it's, it's an important part. So, the, like, the evocative melodies in Dementia there are sort of standard beach riff stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, and, the, like, the um, there's a part in um, To Get Death Together as One that I think was maybe my first beach riff moment. Um, we're going to get another one um, near the end of this show, too, with, uh, with Cynic. So, even though Believer is from Pennsylvania, is beach riff often a Floridian thing? Well, I mean, not – not necessarily because Loud Blast wrote beach riffs too. Mm. Um, they're French, um, though you know they could have been at like you know Arcachon on summer holiday or something. And I guess Kirk Bachman was maybe going to the Jersey Shore to get his beach riff inspiration. <laughs> um, I just I, it, for me it started with Chuck, so I've just naturally always associated with Florida. Right. Um, yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So, and and not to be confused with yacht rock. All right. Not. No. No. Yeah. These, these are not yacht riffs. Just because you're playing beach riff doesn't mean you're playing yacht rock. No, right. No, no but I not no. You know, not to. I'm not making fun of your beach riff thing. I love it. I think it's great. You know, like, like I said, like that. It, it evokes a certain mood and or, or a combination of moods. And right, um, yeah, combination. Exactly. I think Believer does that all over the place on a lot of dimensions. And let's listen to this other song. This is um, a song called "What Is But Cannot Not Be." And I just realized that for 25 years now exactly uh, i've been reading that as what is but cannot be which is a complete completely different completely thing. different yeah. yeah this one's fascinating let's check it out and talk about it when we get back
Yeah, man, that's the sound of Believer just going completely nutso. I mean, you've got the vocal effects, you've got the sounds of complete madness by the guitars in the first half of that Chaos, snippet. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just schizophrenic, <laughs> weird, scary shit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of Believer right there. I think that kind of encapsulates the best of what they're about when they're at their strangest. Yes. Which is really kind of when they're at their best, too. Yeah. After that, there's a couple other great songs, Singularity, No Apology. Then we get to this trilogy of knowledge, which anybody familiar with Sanity Obscure knows of uh, Daya Zire, Day of Wrath. That was such an amazing thing. It had this, it was incorporated classical and opera and sort of Kansas-esque prog with the violin uh, and metal, of course. And it was amazing. I mean, I, th- I really think that's still one of their best moments, if not their best and it's not my favorite but it's definitely like in the top five believer moments for me yeah i just and i think it out theorion's theorion any day like i think it 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 did what theorion tried to do later but it became kind of a double-edged sword on dimensions because the album wraps up with multi-part 20-minute trilogy of knowledge which was kind of obviously uh, them carrying on diazi ray and trying to take it even further stretching it out and this never totally worked for me what about you no no, it never worked for me then. It doesn't work for me now. I, I listened to it um, in its entirety uh, just as a function of preparing this episode. And I still think that its, uh, its ambitions outpace its execution by a pretty wide margin, actually. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of praise about it. People tend to like it. Does the Trilogy of Knowledge kind of bring down the album at all for you? And, and do you skip it when you listen? Uh, yeah, typically. Um, it really doesn't bring down the album because it's tacked on at the end. Um, so I can listen to the first six songs and then not have to acknowledge it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> that, I, I feel badly about that. Um, and I, I feel like maybe it compromises my integrity as a listener a little bit, but I just, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, it's not necessary to the, the, you know, the cumulative effect of the album. And I think it would have been better off without it. Believer broke up shortly after this. I think they found it tough to keep going and boxing themselves into a, this kind of niche corner that they had kind of created. Um, but also, so did Pestilence and Cynic. All three bands were talking about broke up after these albums. And beyond these three bands, same thing happened with Atheist and Anna Cruzis and Corner and uh, probably a few others. They either changed their sound quite a bit like Oblivion did or they broke up completely. What's your take on that? Um, I've always... Um... I guess it kind of gets back to what I was mentioning earlier about all of this representing kind of the end of the evolutionary arc for um, death metal, for kind of, I guess, progressive-minded extreme metal. I think some of these bands really just took stock and said, I don't know what else we can really do with this. You know, we've, we've really kind of exhausted the possibilities. Yeah. And if you, if you think about it and you – I mean, you kind of look at it through the lens of 2018. I, I think that there is merit to substantiate that claim. Like, if you think about what metal bands are doing now, are they really doing anything radically new against what bands in 1993, the most advanced, most challenging, progressive-minded bands, were doing in 1993? And I, I think the answer objectively is, is no. I would say no, with the exception of Norway and a few outliers like Hailstorm right. Noir or you know who, whoever. I mean, there's there's a yeah. few out there, of course, but they're they're in the vast minority. 
I think metal right now is just a lot of variations on a theme. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we're, we're in the, the cannibalization uh, era of metal. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and you also don't have these bands uh, coming out where you're like just on the edge of your seat. Like, what are they going to do next? What's around the next corner? Uh, because cause even the ones that are um, kind of really interesting, uh, like a Dodimes Guard or a Fluidy, they're not releasing albums with the frequency uh, that, say, like a Voivod or an, or an Atheist used to right. or a Pestilence. And where you where you are expecting some interesting different turn, like there's just not enough frequency there to keep you on the edge of your seat. And I kind of miss that. I kind of miss bands sort of like giving you something really unexpected or unknown the minute you start listening to that new album. You know, you, you kind of know what you're getting these days. I I think. I do too. I, being a an enslaved fan in the '90s was a real thrill. Sure. Um, because it was like every you knew every album was going to be totally different from the one before. Right. Um, right. Or it was just they, a significant you know, yeah. leap forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even like you know, uh, Bloodhem versus Eld, yeah. kind of like a step back to black metal, but still different. You know. Oh sure, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that gets us to Pestilence uh, from the Netherlands. Um, they began playing this caustic death thrash metal mixture uh, by the second album, Consuming Impulse. That was yeah, they were firmly in death metal territory by Consuming Impulse. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, uh, they were they were so great at like mixing brutality and harshness with a kind of musicality um, that some yes. of the other bands really didn't have. And then you know they started leaning toward ambitions outside of metal. You could hear that on on one track on Consuming Impulse, and then of course. The third album, Testimony of the Ancients, has all those segues, and which kind of deepens the journey. And they they had Tony Choi in on bass, of course, from Atheist and Cynic. But nobody, I don't think, was prepared for the shift toward the utterly cosmic synth guitar-driven stuff as heard on Spheres when that came no. out in '93. No, I, I wasn't prepared for that shift. Y- yeah, when it when it came out, it's probably accurate to say that like of the three albums we're talking about, Spheres was easily the most disliked. I recall kind of Absolutely. a huge backlash to it, actually. You know, they'd just gone too far for most people. I mean, I loved it right away, although there was always something of a barrier even between me and it. Like, I knew I loved it, but I just didn't feel like close to it. Although I was like, well, maybe that's kind of the whole point, this kind of cold, yeah. mechanical, dry space vacuum void thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, it eventually became part of my DNA, but it, it took a lot of acclimation. Now, you, I think, this was the most difficult one for you to get into out of these three, right? Oh, e- easily. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was into um, I was into focus and, and dimensions immediately. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, th- this was an about face um, for me. I totally agree with you about the, the distance because I felt that for a, a long time. There was always, like, something about it that didn't quite work for me, and I've finally figured out that that problem was Marco Fadis's drumming uh-huh. and how far the other guys had come and Fadis, who I think is a really, really good death metal drummer. I mean, his, you know, you don't find sturdier drumming in death metal than his on consuming impulse. I, I have no problem with him on the other three albums at all. Yeah. No, no, he's, he's very, very solid. Um, but he was ill-equipped for um, the, the leap they took between, uh, uh, testimony of the ancients and, and spheres, I think. I, I, I held that opinion for a long time and I still kind of partly still hold that guy. Cause I know what you mean. And, and if you just one listen to it and you're like, yeah, this drummer is kind of lagging behind the rest of the guys. Um, and he's not nimble or intricate enough of a player to have that looser feel that I think the material is sort of asking for. 
Right. Yet that's kind of part of Spheres' appeal. Like it's cold, yep. mechanical, forbidding, robotic stuff. Some of the riffs are kind of stiff too, right? And just in the oh, way. Oh, yeah, that- absolutely. The entire thing is sort of stiff and cold. Yeah. So it kind of fits. Like, I mean. It's the Lars Ulrich effect. Like you can sit around and badmouth Lars, but Lars and his drumming is part of what makes Metallica sound the way they sound. No, it's true. I mean, like, I wouldn't, like, now that I like Spheres as much as I do, I wouldn't really want anybody but Fadis on it, even though I understand sort of why other people would or, like, why, right. why he's a kind of a sticking point. There are moments on this where I'm like, oh, I'm kind of glad he's there. He sort of, sort of makes it yeah. what it is. So it, it is definitely the Ulrich Metallica argument. I wouldn't want anybody else and Ride the Lightning or Master. Uh, you, can, right. you can pick apart Lars's lack of technical skill all day, but I wouldn't want anybody else on there. No, no, I, I've accepted Fadis as a part of the framework now, and I, and I agree with you. Yeah, I, I, I don't want anybody else on it now. Absolutely. Yeah. For those n- not familiar, maybe this will be fun to just kind of listen to uh, a track called Multiple Beings, and we can, uh, we can hear how they sound at this point. Yeah. You know, I, when Patrick Mamelli, the guitarist, took over lead vocals on the previous album, I don't think he was like the greatest voice. Like he, there wasn't that much that was very distinguishing about him. Well, especially after, 
after Van Drunen. Well, yeah, uh, well, exactly right. I mean, he's following. It's, it's a hard <laughs> act to follow. But but I, I think on Spheres, he's actually quite unhinged. And oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I agree. I think he's better on Spheres, actually, uh, as a vocal. Yeah, no, no absolutely. It, Spheres, too, is a, one of those records like um, uh, like Despel Omega or the first um, – I, I get the first and third monster magnet records where they're almost always, there's like this omnipresence of sound, you know, like there's always something going on. Oh, right, um, right. It's really pretty overwhelming. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly dense, you know? Um, and part of that sound picture, like the, the band were really careful to quote on the album. There are no keyboards on this album. So when you listen to something like the synth guitar solo in the title track, we're not, that's not one we're going to play, but um, that thing is amazing. And all the bizarre cosmic sounds they ring out of these synth guitars, it's, it's pretty incredible. And speaking of some of, the, some of the cooler sort of like musical aspects of this album, like uh, there's three snippets in it, Orion Eyes, Voices from Within, and Phileas. These just kind of help deepen the journey the same way they did all over Testimony of the Ancients. And uh, I think the album's better for having those in there. What about the album cover, man? I freaking love this album cover. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's it's one of those album covers that that perfectly illustrates the sound of the album itself. And I, you know, it, it's like I stare at. I, it's one of those records too. When I play it, I tend to just stare at the cover um, because of the correspondence between the two. Yeah, it's a perfect piece of artwork. It's Seagrave, right? It's 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 actually Dan Seagrave. And it's, I, when we talk about great Dan Seagrave covers, it's, yeah. I never think of the Pestilence ones, the two he did, and like, but they're great. They're they're awesome, yeah, and and they're, they're but they're very pestilence. Like, there's not like a lot of his covers. You could have like taken you could have taken the Gorguts cover and used that as an entomb cover, you know, and just keep going. Right, like right. These, these pestilence things, you know, you've got that that sphere thing that they would use or whatever that is. Yeah, that became emblematic of of the band. And uh, but yeah, like when I when I listen to spheres, I think of this thing, this this floating kind of cosmic sphere of theirs hurtling through the cosmos. It looks like other worlds are getting sucked into a black hole like that. Totally, like as you were saying, man, totally illustrates exactly what I'm hearing. So really, really one of the... This album sounds like it's sucking you in, you know, pulling you toward the event horizon. For sure, for sure. And like, just, it's just... It's just cosmic really, chaos. Yeah, very effective album cover, and really, I think really worth noting. I think this would be a lovely time to listen to a song called Personal Energy. Yeah. 
I never really think of Pestilence as being Zen, but that's Pestilence's most Zen song, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's the yeah the rarely seen poignant side of of Pestilence and Spheres. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, but you know, you think about what they were listening to at the time. I mean, as I recall, Mameli was basically listening to jazz fusion like almost exclusively at the time. He was listening to a lot of that stuff, and I remember that Pestilence toured with Death on the Human album in Europe. I always wondered if Mameli had like been inspired by what Sean Reiner and Paul Mosfidel were listening to at the time, because those guys at that time were like super into fusion, like Mahavishnu Orchestra, oh, yeah. um, all that, all that good stuff, Chick Corea's. Yeah, Chick Corea. yeah and like it, it seemed to have rubbed off. Like you said, I'm sure it's documented, but I'm I feel very confident that he was inspired by those guys. Yeah. My favorite song in the album is uh, the last one, Demise of Time. There's, a, there's a, of course, a lot of great moments here. but It's a favorite of mine, too. Pay particularly, particularly attention to the ending. We kind of come into this near the end, and we'll, we'll, this, is, this is how the album ends. And I just really like what's going on toward the end of this song. Uh, this is Demise of Time. admit man i like what marco fadas does there i love fadas on that yeah he actually takes this really kind of jagged riff and turns it into a groove yeah yeah he's he's a bit sleeper man after 25 years i'm like finally thinking man you know he's pretty good on this album actually. <laughs> <laughs> marco, forgive us for the things that we've said well i mean no but you always i still listen to this album thinking what if reinert was on it what if sean reinert was on it because a guy with that kind of yeah would work really well here, right? 
I imagine that in an ideal world in 1993, Mameli would have gotten someone a little closer to Reiner than Fox. Right. right. Um, with some jazz chops, uh, you know, uh, maybe with a fusion background like Reiner. But, you know, it was his band. Fadis had been a really important part of the band for years, you know, and uh, supported them through the three previous albums. And, you know, I guess Mameli was just willing to take him along on the journey. Yeah, I mean, as the saying goes, it is what it is. And I think that we love Spheres for what it is. So hats off to Fadis and Mameli and, of course, uh, Patrick Utervik, Utervik, who came into the band on the second album. And I think really greatly kind of, kind of changed their approach and uh, kind of widened their scope. And also... Uh, on that song, especially sure. we hear uh, Jerome Paul Thessaling. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but he was the bassist that came in on this album. And I, and I think, again, you know, brought them to kind of a new level when Tony Choi wasn't available. And those are big shoes to fill. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Didn't that guy end up in uh, Obscura, yeah. the band? He did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that brings us to uh, Cynic's Focus. It's hard to talk about Focus without talking about Death's Human album because, of course, Shouldner had recruited two guys from Cynic for the Human album. This is back when Cynic were still kind of like just putting out tapes and kind of this super cult band. And I remember hearing about them all the time, but never having much access to their music. I think I'd gotten a hold of that three song cassette that they had put out, kind of like an official EP cassette thing. And it was good. It wasn't quite as good as they would become. And and anyway, Death's Human featured Paul Masvidal on guitar and Sean Reinert on drums. And particularly Reinert's work, I think, completely changed or uh, improved or progressed the language of death metal further than it had ever gone before. I will go on record saying that his drumming on that album charted out entirely new geography for all of death metal. I mean, it, it, he expanded the rhythmic possibilities of death metal almost single-handedly on that yeah, album. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they did that cycle, created one of the greatest albums of all time, Inhuman. And then they did the tour. And then, as would happen in death, uh, the lineup changed. And Paul and Sean really just did want to focus more on Cynic anyway. They had an album, or, you know, an album's worth of material. They had interest from Roadrunner. So they finally had some label interest. So... This all started to kind of happen in 1992 for them. And then Hurricane Andrew happened. Speaking of hurricanes, right? That thing blew through Florida in 92, demolished the band's rehearsal space, destroyed pretty much everything they owned in the space, and kind of set them back uh, for more than a year. So they were just embarking on the phase of, of writing this focus thing, or what would become focus, and um, the hurricane happened. So they took some time to take stock of these pressing personal things in their lives that Andrew had disrupted. And in the process, they kind of sort of stepped back and they worked more and more on their instruments. They refined the songs. They rethought the entire band. And yeah. Tony Choi went on to other things and, you know, went on to Atheist and Pestilence and worked himself out of the band. And they got in a guy named Sean Malone. And then Focus came out in 93, 25 years ago. And it was an album that was very different than what the original focus might have been. Do you remember where you were at when you first heard it and what you knew about Cynic at the time? Let me go back a little from there because sure. I had, like you, and, and later on, because by the time that I heard about uh, Cynic for the first time, the Roadrunner demo had already been uh, distributed um, to uh, certain critics. You know, and, and there was a lot of there was a lot of hype around these guys because they were clearly on the more advanced end of death metal and. They, they everybody was saying jazz death and 
you know, Death Fusion. And I remember getting the Death Door 2 compilation and hearing the original Euroboric forums and thinking like, wow, this is really cool, but it's not what I was expecting it to be. Yeah. Um, and then, like, and I, I heard that in early 93, and then in late 93, getting focus and going, okay, this is exactly what I was hoping it would be. Uh, I mean, it was, it was like, you know, it still seems like an unprecedented sound. You know, there's almost nothing in metal or any music that seems like genuinely new. You know, even it could be a novel composite of different sounds, but like, Focus synthesized all these different things and turned it into something genuinely new and their own. Yeah, completely agree. That was exactly my feeling as well. Um, and I'm kind of coming from the same background with it as you were in terms of my knowledge of the band and, and what I expected versus what we got. And I just remember putting it on and the airy feel of the thing, right? The fluidity and the acrobatic feel of the riffs were just so different alien to it. it anything and, and just beyond death metal because it was obviously from the first few notes and, and the first few minutes not really adhering to what we considered death metal yet it had its right feet there as a foundation so so there was that aspect and the kind of i'm not going to say softer production but it does have this kind of like it's it is it's, it's like soft focused it, the, the edges are rounded off yeah it's almost pastel yeah. in, in a way versus like the more hard kind of concrete type sturdy ass you know death metal productions that were coming out this thing had a lot of color and uh lighter colors as well and they were completely content to work with these lighter things so that so that was kind of novel i i also remember the mixture of the vocals you know you had the death metal voice you had the robotic right. voice you occasionally had a female voice sometimes you had some whispering i mean it was so esoteric sounding sure and then you know yeah the airiness of it is really kind of what you mentioned was one of the defining features for me because yeah. we, we tend to associate gravity and weight and, and sturdiness with death metal. And this almost felt like it was in zero gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Even the band photos, right? With, with Reiner doing some kind of like yoga right. pose, uh, Mosvidal kind of submerging himself <laughs> yeah. restfully in water like that. You know, this, this was really unusual for any sort of metal band to present themselves this way. Yeah. Really special. Let's jump to the second track on Focus and listen to Celestial Voyage. I know, I know you're just chomping at the bit to just kind of get into the meat of what we're talking about. Yeah, this is Celestial Voyage.
Man, so like 25 years later and 300, 400 listens later, like I'm still really excited by the transition <laughs> of their songs. Yeah. I think that's one of the things, like when, they, when they'll shift and they'll sort of do these transitions, they're just really so exciting and they're just perfect how seamless they are. Yeah, well, that's part of what you were talking about earlier, that year where they stepped back and refined everything. Like the, the transitions on the, um, on the Roadrunner demo are very conspicuous and, and like seem almost um, designed to surprise. Yeah. Um, these are, yeah, they're seamless. They're organic. They're, per- they're still surprising. Um, but they just, you know, one idea flows from the flows to the next um, with, you know, just I, 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 I'm looking for a Zen reference here <laughs> because I do. I, I feel like there is this like this oneness with the music that these guys have where all the ideas are sort of for the, you know, the perfect benefit of the song and they all work in, in harmony together. Um, yeah, I mean. I, yeah, like I, I said, man, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words to talk about Cynic. <laughs> no, I hear you. When, when, I, when I listen to that stuff, when they get into these deep grooves and it's just, they're, they're kind of cyclic and, and the fluidity is just, it's flowing. And, you know, I do see guys just like kind of like losing their minds and, and they're going to this other world as they're playing. And it's funny because that actually yeah. kind of links into when I saw them back uh, on this tour, they were opening for Cannibal Corpse. I think it was the only U.S. tour they did for the album. And... I know that along the way they had some hecklers naturally in front of that crowd, but uh, the show I saw. <laughs> yeah. When you're sandwiched between sinister and cannibal corpse. Yeah. Sinister. That's right. Sinister was uh, opening before cynic. Yeah. That was crazy. But the show I saw, even the most straightforward death metal kids, they might not have loved it, but they sat there watching really one of the most incredible displays of musicianship that probably anybody in that room would ever see. And I remember For being sure. struck by like Paul and sometimes Jason Goble the other guitarist kind of they get and and even Sean Malone sometimes they get into the Zen moment and they just like start closing their eyes kind of being transported by their music. And you're like, this is weird. Like this is just weird to see any metal band kind of doing this. And not that metal. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were dressed in like, you know, these paisley pants and, and uh, you know, like it was just, but it was awesome. I I mean, I immediately took to it because I I could see that whatever they, you know, they were deeply, deeply into this stuff that they're doing. Right. And, yeah. It's a, it's about the hypnosis of it. I, I just find it hypnotic and I think they got, they were delivering it. So of course they were getting sucked into the hypnosis of it all too. Just an extraordinary band. I mean, you know, what else can we say? I'd like to listen to, uh, I don't know our next snippet. I'm but a wave. Hey, can I, can I have a little sidebar? Yes. Sidebar for a moment. Sidebar alert. So interesting. Um, yeah. Sidebar alert, everyone. Mm-mm-mm. Um, yeah, I, in early, t- <laughs> In early 2002, I started going on eBay and trying to find tape show VHS copies of of the shows from that tour. Yeah, um, and I, I ended up scoring a, a few of them. I got a Berkeley show. I I think it was a I can't remember what else. But anyway, there was a show from Iowa that I got, That's- and I put it on, and I see Jeff in the crowd because it wasn't a huge crowd. Um, <laughs> And it was your friend Mike, right, that you were with? Yeah, Is yeah. Is that right? Yep, Mike Hope. Yeah, 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 Mike Hope. So it was really funny to throw this on. And Jeff and I had, like, just started our friendship, kind of. And we, Nathan and I put the tape on. It's like, oh, there's Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you sending that to me. Or maybe, like, you found the link on early early version of YouTube or something. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, but you sent it to me. I was able to see that. Yeah. I'm like, 
Yeah, indeed. That, that's me. That's I think we converted it to, uh, to DVD after that. Okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah, that, that's hilarious, man. Yeah. Yeah, good sidebar. I mean, didn't you, you've said at various times that this may be your favorite album of all time. How, how does it rank with you right now? If I had to, if I were forced to make a list of my, I, I'll go beyond top five and say top three albums of all time, mm -hmm. this would be in there. Okay. And probably for me, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna commit myself to this, but I'll, I'll just toss it out there because these three are always gonna be around. But like this album, the first Mars Volta record, and Mr. Bungles California are always for me like the top end of my listening. Okay, I'm I'm happy commit. I'm happy like with those three albums. I'm happy with those high, two. Not not as mine, but I I like that. <laughs> No, those are all, those are all three great. I mean, God, good God. I mean, it's hard to find that triumvirate that, that powerful. Uh, and with that, with that kind of span, look, look at the span of music you get throughout those three records, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm going to completely avoid trying to whittle my three albums down. So let's just move on to uh, first song. <laughs> let's second. listen to some cynic. Yeah. First song, second side. If you ha are lucky enough to have the either the original vinyl or the reissue but this is the this starts the second half this is a song called i'm but a wave two dot 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 and i think what's interesting about cynic two and focus is some of the some of the song titles are very different as well like how could i and i'm but a wave two sentiment and veil of yeah. maya and textures i mean like you know it all of them yeah got it really everything about this album rules I don't even know what a Euroboric form is, but it's still different. And I don't care. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, beautiful. For all the finer points we've talked about with this album and this band, um, you know, there's no doubting that the propulsive energy there in, in spots is very, very metal. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, like Reinhardt was a big creator fan. Yeah. I mean, they were all, you know, they were metal kids at one point. But I mean, I, I think that, you know, as, as listeners, um, their interests gravitated elsewhere. But I mean, you know, I think, you know, you and I could can understand this but once once you've fallen in love with metal it's with you in a like a molecular sense forever um and i i I hear that as well on this yeah also Uh, too like with with reiner you've got a drummer that not only is inspired by the most elite players in the world you've got a guy that could have literally at this point in his playing like subbed in for Vinny or dave weckl or gary husband on a gig like yeah. he he was fully capable of playing fusion, you know. I mean, he's a really really um, uh, evolved player at this point. I like how you say Vinny just as his his first name, as if everybody else can will, will totally know the last name. <laughs> Sorry, you're in, a, you're in a first name. Basis. <laughs> My apologies. You're in a first name basis with Vinny. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah, me and Vinny. Yeah, yeah, we get we get a slice of pie every now and then. Me and Vinny. <laughs> um, he did play in a Megadeth record once, though. <laughs> he, he did. Yeah, he did. He did. He also played on several Gino Vanelli records, and was in Zappa. Now that, that's a, that's a that's about the only guy in the world who can say that. Uh, have that kind of resume. <laughs> that is the only guy in the world that can say he played with Megadeth and Gino Vanelli. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> is there anything else about Focus that you want to mention before we get into How Could I and and the final moments here? Yeah, I, I really, I, I was kind of disappointed that we couldn't play the entire record because textures, I mean, there's always been, at least, I mean, there's there's always been an, a uh, tradition of instrumental songs on metal records, hmm. um, and, and that became particularly true in the 80s, um, and I'm, I'm thinking, of course, uh, of Coroner's Arclight as a, a highlight in in that tradition sure um and, and and a really really advanced piece of music at the time um textures and well and to there's precedent here because death uh, human sean reiner recorded the drums too quickly <laughs> if you can imagine that and yeah. so they wound up with more studio time and they all like jammed out and ended up writing uh cosmic um uh cosmic c yeah. And so, like, I mean, that was a really, really daring thing on a death metal record. Totally. Textures um, takes that and expands it um, exponentially. I mean, it's yeah. just a really, really extraordinary piece of music that, like, brings in an 80s King Crimson influence, all the influences that we've been talking about from the fusion world, but also, like, some really dexterous and, and impactful metal, too, right? Absolutely. No, great points, all of those. And, um, Beyond that, textures and even sentiment on the album kind of like pointed toward where they would go with the band that be, that sort of um, succeeded Cynic, which was Portal. I think those two songs kind of point toward Portal a little bit. Yeah, great point. Um, great point. Yeah, and then after textures, we get How Could I, and um, which is one of the greatest album endings ever, right? It is. I mean, but before we play that. And we're going to end the show with that song. And it really is one of the greatest endings ever. I want people to listen to that with, with, with that in mind. Um, I just don't think you can end an album much better, especially an album of this type and how they kind of bring you out of it. Before we listen to that, 
what have we learned here, Hunter? Like, what, what have you learned looking at these three albums and kind of focusing in on 1993, 25 years after the fact? I, for me personally, I, I like, I just keep going back to the fact um, outside of, and you brought this up earlier, outside of the talented and, and precocious group of musicians who made up the Norwegian metal scene in the, the mid nineties, early nineties and mid nineties. I don't think we've come all that far from where we are now, what we're talking about today. I mean, I think that if you play metal, um, if you listen to metal, then you, you need um, to listen to this stuff and understand its importance, understand its, its innovations. It's, you know, it's essential genius. I mean, the, these three albums and the whole spirit of 1993, and, and Jeff knows how, and we've alluded to this on the, the show before, how important this year is to me. I mean, this is sort of, for me, the, the, the anim, Anis Mirabilis in metal's history. Like, mm. this is kind of like the, 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 you know, the mountain peak. And I think these three albums um, do a really good job at articulating that for us. It just, it, I, and, but it's also very inspiring for me because it, it continues to remind me of the possibilities within metal, how, me, how much metal can actually do in the right hands. Amen, brother. Definitely couldn't have said it better. That's, that's really- I think you probably could have. That's really, no, I couldn't have. And that's what we've learned here. So th- thank you for that. Um, I want to thank all the Radical Research listeners right now just for their enthusiasm so far, 15 shows in. Like it's, there have been a lot of people out there that have been really encouraging and kind of really inspired and really inspiring for us. And uh, uh, they're kind of getting what this program is all about and, and um, why we felt the need to you know, bring it out into podcast world. Also, also want to thank Kevin Stewart Panko and Albert Mudrian for their interest in Radical Research. Uh, they just recently did a piece on Decibel Magazine's website. We really appreciate the coverage there. We appreciate anybody who has uh, come to us on Facebook or through email and uh, encouraged us and challenged us and um, really just given us support for, for what we do here. So yeah, please uh, please like us on Facebook and uh, you know review us on iTunes if you like. We really uh, do appreciate that sort of support. You can give us donations through PayPal at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. And we're going to take you out on Cynic's How Could I? 